the Bible. From America's colonial period to her rise to become the richest, most powerful nation in history, the ideas and values that guide us, protect us, and hold our society together flow from the pages of this book of books. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Our founding documents affirm and build on the scriptural concepts of God-given, not state-granted rights, and of liberty under law. The biblical worldview shaped our work ethic, made education a priority, and birthed the notion of finite, limited government under divine authority. One nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. The pilgrims, the Puritans, the founding fathers and American leaders throughout our history have emphasized the Bible's importance to America. The first and almost the only book worthy of universal attention is the Bible. John Quincy Adams. But for the book, we cannot know right from wrong. All the things desirable to man are contained in it. Abraham Lincoln. The foundations of our society and our government rest so much on the teachings of the Bible that it would be difficult to support them if faith in these teachings would cease to be practically universal in our country. Calvin Coolidge. The Bible Live is your opportunity to listen to the Bible. A 15 to 20 minute reading every weeknight. The entire Bible every year. Now, here's the host of the Bible Live, your Apache Indian scout on this annual excursion through the Word, Soapy Dollar. And here we are, thanking you as always for being along with us for this journey through the Scriptures. We're going to read from the Proverbs, of course, but we're continuing our way through the books of First and Second Corinthians. We haven't quite finished the first letter. We've gotten deep into chapter 12. We'll finish up chapter 12 tonight and go right on into the great love chapter of the Bible, 1 Corinthians chapter 13. A beautiful portion of Scripture, always a treat. It's always wonderful to be reading First and Second Corinthians at this time of the year, coming around the celebration of the birth of our nation, the 4th of July. Freedom, that is one of the great themes of the two letters that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church. Freedom. We are set free from the power of sin. Tomorrow night, we'll go right on into the book of 2 Corinthians, talking about the true definition of freedom, not just to do whatever I want to do, but the true definition of freedom is the power and the ability to do the right thing, the good thing. And that is true freedom, that we are not enslaved in bondage to our sinful, selfish nature. Well, let's go first, though, to our Wisdom and Worship segment into the book of the Proverbs, chapter 20 tonight on The Bible Life. Proverbs 20, 17 through 30. Stolen bread tastes sweet, but it turns to gravel in the mouth. Plans succeed through good counsel. Don't go to war without the advice of others. A gossip tells secrets, so don't hang around with someone who talks too much. If you curse your father or mother, the lamp of your life will be snuffed out. An inheritance obtained early in life is not a blessing in the end. Don't say, I will get even for this wrong. Wait for the Lord to handle the matter. The Lord despises double standards. He is not pleased by dishonest scales. How can we understand the road we travel? It is the Lord who directs our steps. It is dangerous to make a rash promise to God before counting the cost. 
A wise king finds the wicked, lays them out like wheat, then runs the crushing wheel over them. The Lord's searchlight penetrates the human spirit, exposing every hidden motive. Unfailing love and faithfulness protect the king. His throne is made secure through love. The glory of the young is their strength. The gray hair of experience is the splendor of the old. Physical punishment cleanses away evil. Such discipline purifies the heart. End of reading, Proverbs 20, 17 through 30. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Welcome back, everyone, to the Bible Live broadcast. We are in the book of 1 Corinthians tonight, this letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth from just across the Aegean Sea. Titus may have carried this letter from Ephesus to Corinth. Well, we're into the book of 1 Corinthians. In chapters 10, 11, and 12, we have Paul coming out of talking about chaos in the worship time, the immorality that was in the congregation there. He talked about the role of women in the time of worship. I don't particularly think this is supposed to be generalized. The principle, yes, but not the specifics. He's talking to a city where there were many, many pagan temples and over a thousand temple prostitutes, women involved in worship in these pagan religions. And he was telling them to be careful to not to be uh, mistaken for one of those kind of congregations. Then he got into spiritual gifts and the unity and the harmony of God's church. Even on the local basis as we come together, we are like a body with its many parts, but we function as one. So that's the context as we approach chapter 13. He's talking about the different gifts within the body, and then he gives some of the gifts that he has given to the church, apostles, prophets, teachers, and so on. And then finally he says, but above all these gifts, the most important one for us to have is love, genuine selfless love for one another. 1 Corinthians 12:27 through 15:49. 1 Corinthians 12. Now all of you together are Christ's body, and each one of you is a separate and necessary part of it. Here is a list of some of the members that God has placed in the body of Christ. First are apostles, second are prophets, third are teachers, then those who do miracles, those who have the gift of healing, those who can help others those who can get others to work together, those who speak in unknown languages. Is everyone an apostle? Of course not. Is everyone a prophet? No. Are all teachers? Does everyone have the power to do miracles? Does everyone have the gift of healing? Of course not. Does God give all of us the ability to speak in unknown languages? Can everyone interpret unknown languages? No. And in any event, you should desire the most helpful gifts. First, however, let me tell you about something else that is better than any of them. 1 Corinthians 13 If I could speak in any language, in heaven or on earth, but didn't love others, I would only be making meaningless noise like a loud gong or a clanging cymbal. If I had the gift of prophecy, and if I knew all the mysteries of the future and knew everything about everything, but didn't love others, 
what good would I be? And if I had the gift of faith so that I could speak to a mountain and make it move, without love I would be no good to anybody. If I gave everything I have to the poor and even sacrificed my body, I could boast about it. But if I didn't love others, I would be of no value whatsoever. Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. Love does not demand its own way. Love is not irritable, and it keeps no record of when it has been wronged. It is never glad about injustice, but rejoices whenever the truth wins out. Love never gives up, never loses faith, is always hopeful, and endures through every circumstance. Love will last forever, but prophecy and speaking in unknown languages and special knowledge will all disappear. Now we know only a little, and even the gift of prophecy reveals little. But when the end comes, these special gifts will all disappear. It's like this. When I was a child, I spoke and thought and reasoned as a child does. But when I grew up, I put away childish things. Now we see things imperfectly, as in a poor mirror. But then we will see everything with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete. But then I will know everything completely, just as God knows me now. There are three things that will endure, faith, hope, and love. And the greatest of these is love. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. 1 Corinthians 14 Let love be your highest goal, but also desire the special abilities the Spirit gives, especially the gift of prophecy. For if your gift is the ability to speak in tongues, you will be talking to God but not to people, since they won't be able to understand you. You will be speaking by the power of the Spirit, but it will all be mysterious. But one who prophesies is helping others grow in the Lord, encouraging and comforting them. A person who speaks in tongues is strengthened personally in the Lord, but one who speaks a word of prophecy strengthens the entire church. I wish you all had the gift of speaking in tongues, but even more, I wish you were all able to prophesy, for prophecy is a greater and more useful gift than speaking in tongues. Unless someone interprets what you are saying so that the whole church can get some good out of it. Dear brothers and sisters, if I should come to you talking in an unknown language, how would that help you? But if I bring you some revelation or some special knowledge or some prophecy or some teaching, that is what will help you. Even musical instruments like the flute or the harp, though they are lifeless, are examples of the need for speaking in plain language. For no one will recognize the melody unless the notes are played clearly. And if the bugler doesn't sound a clear call, how will the soldiers know they are being called to battle? And it's the same for you. If you talk to people in a language they don't understand, how will they know what you mean? You might as well be talking to an empty room. There are so many different languages in the world, and all are excellent for those who understand them. But to me, they mean nothing. I will not understand people who speak those languages, and they will not understand me. Since you are so eager to have spiritual gifts, ask God for those that will be of real help to the whole church. So anyone who has the gift of speaking in tongues should pray also for the gift of interpretation, in order to tell people plainly what has been said. For if I pray in tongues, my spirit is praying, but I don't understand what I am saying. Well then, what shall I do? I will do both. I will pray in the Spirit, and I will pray in words I understand. 
I will sing in the Spirit, and I will sing in words I understand. For if you praise God only in the Spirit, how can those who don't understand you praise God along with you? How can they join you in giving thanks when they don't understand what you are saying? You will be giving thanks very nicely, no doubt, but it doesn't help the other people present. I thank God that I speak in tongues more than all of you, but in a church meeting I would much rather speak five understandable words that will help others than 10,000 words in an unknown language. Dear brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your understanding of these things. Be innocent as babies when it comes to evil, but be mature and wise in understanding matters of this kind. It is written in the Scriptures, I will speak to my own people through unknown languages and through the lips of foreigners, but even then they will not listen to me, says the Lord. So you see that speaking in tongues is a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is for the benefit of believers, not unbelievers. Even so, if unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come into your meeting and hear everyone talking in an unknown language, they will think you are crazy. But if all of you are prophesying, and unbelievers or people who don't understand these things come into your meeting, they will be convicted of sin, and they will be condemned by what you say. As they listen, their secret thoughts will be laid bare, and they will fall down on their knees and worship God, declaring, God is really here among you. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Well, my brothers and sisters, let's summarize what I am saying. When you meet, one will sing, another will teach, another will tell some special revelation God has given, one will speak in an unknown language, while another will interpret what is said. But everything that is done must be useful to all and build them up in the Lord. No more than two or three should speak in an unknown language. They must speak one at a time, and someone must be ready to interpret what they are saying. But if no one is present who can interpret, they must be silent in your church meeting and speak in tongues to God privately. Let two or three prophesy, and let the others evaluate what is said. But if someone is prophesying and another person receives a revelation from the Lord, the one who is speaking must stop. In this way, all who prophesy will have a turn to speak, one after the other so that everyone will learn and be encouraged. Remember that people who prophesy are in control of their spirit and can wait their turn. For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the other churches. Women should be silent during the church meetings. It is not proper for them to speak. They should be submissive, just as the law says. If they have any questions to ask, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is improper for women to speak in church meetings. Do you think that the knowledge of God's Word begins and ends with you, Corinthians? Well, you are mistaken. If you claim to be a prophet or think you are very spiritual, you should recognize that what I am saying is a command from the Lord Himself. But if you do not recognize this, you will not be recognized. So, dear brothers and sisters, be eager to prophesy, and don't forbid speaking in tongues. But be sure that everything is done properly and in order. 1 Corinthians 15 Now let me remind you, dear brothers and sisters, of the good news I preached to you before. You welcomed it then and still do now, for your faith is built on this wonderful message. And it is this good news that saves you if you firmly believe it. Unless, of course, you believed something that was never true in the first place. I passed on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins 
just as the Scripture said. He was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, as the Scripture said. He was seen by Peter and then by the twelve apostles. After that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died by now. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. Last of all, I saw him too, long after the others, as though I had been born at the wrong time. For I am the least of all the apostles, and I am not worthy to be called an apostle after the way I persecuted the church of God. But whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me, and not without results. For I have worked harder than all the other apostles. Yet it was not I but God who was working through me by his grace. So it makes no difference whether I preach or they preach. The important thing is that you believed what we preached to you. But tell me this, since we preach that Christ rose from the dead, why are some of you saying there will be no resurrection of the dead? For if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ was not raised, then all our preaching is useless, and your trust in God is useless. And we apostles would all be lying about God, for we have said that God raised Christ from the dead. But that can't be true if there is no resurrection of the dead. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then Christ has not been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless, and you are still under condemnation for your sins. In that case, all who have died believing in Christ have perished. And if we have hope in Christ only for this life, we are the most miserable people in the world. But the fact is that Christ has been raised from the dead. He has become the first of a great harvest of those who will be raised to life again. You're listening to The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. So you see, just as death came into the world through a man, Adam, now the resurrection from the dead has begun through another man, Christ. Everyone dies because all of us are related to Adam, the first man. But all who are related to Christ, the other man, will be given new life. But there is an order to this resurrection. Christ was raised first. Then, when Christ comes back, all his people will be raised. After that, the end will come, when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having put down all enemies of every kind. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet, and the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say God has given him authority over all things. Of course, when it says authority over all things, it does not include God himself who gave Christ his authority. Then, when he has conquered all things, the Son will present himself to God, so that God, who gave his Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything everywhere. If the dead will not be raised, then what point is there in people being baptized for those who are dead? Why do it unless the dead will someday rise again? And why should we ourselves be continually risking our lives, facing death hour by hour? For I swear, dear brothers and sisters, I face death daily. This is as certain as my pride in what the Lord Jesus Christ has done in you. And what value was there in fighting wild beasts, those men of Ephesus, if there will be no resurrection from the dead? If there is no resurrection, let's feast and get drunk, for tomorrow we die. Don't be fooled by those who say such things, for bad company corrupts good character. Come to your senses and stop sinning. 
For to your shame, I say that some of you don't even know God. But someone may ask, how will the dead be raised? What kind of bodies will they have? What a foolish question. When you put a seed into the ground, it doesn't grow into a plant unless it dies first. And what you put in the ground is not the plant that will grow, but only a dry little seed of wheat or whatever it is you are planting. Then God gives it a new body, just the kind He wants it to have. A different kind of plant grows from each kind of seed. And just as there are different kinds of seeds and plants, so also there are different kinds of flesh, whether of humans, animals, birds, or fish. There are bodies in the heavens, and there are bodies on earth. The glory of the heavenly bodies is different from the beauty of the earthly bodies. The sun has one kind of glory, while the moon and stars each have another kind. And even the stars differ from each other in their beauty and brightness. It is the same way for the resurrection of the dead. Our earthly bodies, which die and decay, will be different when they are resurrected, for they will never die. Our bodies now disappoint us, but when they are raised, they will be full of glory. They are weak now, but when they are raised, they will be full of power. They are natural human bodies now, but when they are raised, they will be spiritual bodies. For just as there are natural bodies, so also there are spiritual bodies. The scriptures tell us, the first man, Adam, became a living person, but the last Adam, that is Christ, is a life-giving spirit. What came first was the natural body, then the spiritual body comes later. Adam, the first man, was made from the dust of the earth, while Christ, the second man, came from heaven. Every human being has an earthly body just like Adam's, but our heavenly bodies will be just like Christ's. Just as we are now like Adam, the man of the earth, so we will someday be like Christ, the man from heaven. End of reading, 1 Corinthians 12, 27 through 15, 49. All right, there are a lot of themes here in this reading. We don't have time to go in every passage and every detail. I love 1 Corinthians 13 in the sense that even in the midst of the differences, the variety and diversity of gifts and understanding, and even styles of worship, the great love chapter gives guidance as to how we are to respect and esteem one another in the body of Christ. Many of the things that Paul speaks to here in the Corinthian church have their roots in the society and the culture of that time. And again, as I mentioned before, I don't think that we are necessarily to take every specific guidance he gives to the people of Corinth. For example, the talk about head coverings and the length of hair earlier on in the book, it's a good example of what some of the things he talks about even in the reading tonight. Paul is saying that believers should look and behave in ways that are honorable in their own cultural setting. In many cultures, long hair on men is considered appropriate and masculine. In Corinth, it was thought to be a sign of male prostitution. Remember, we told you about all of that immorality in those pagan temples. And women with short hair, by the way, were also labeled and thought to be prostitutes. Paul was saying that in that culture, in that place, in their city, Christian women should keep their hair long. You can understand that if short hair on women was a sign of prostitution, then a Christian woman with short hair would find it difficult to be a credible witness for Jesus Christ. 
he was not saying that we should adopt all the practices of our culture and give in to all of them, but that we should avoid appearances and behavior that would detract from our ultimate goal of being witnesses for and an influence for Jesus the Savior. You can take that principle from just a simple thing of head covering to the way we dress. He addresses that at other times. And even to the role and the place of women in the congregation. They were not to stand and be loud and up front in the congregation because they did not want to give a false idea and impression about the church in the context in which they lived. That certainly was not Paul's idea that women were secondary citizens. He, he often says that there is no male or female, Jew or Greek, that we are all genuinely equal and accepted on the same basis in Christ, but we want to live and act and behave in our settings in a way that would honor the Lord. Not only does Paul say that there's no male and female and so on in that sense of hierarchy, in other places he sent women evangelists and women missionaries to other congregations and said, I want you to receive her as you would receive me with honor. Phoebe, if I remember correctly, was one deaconess that he introduces to other congregations. There were others as well. So Paul is not anti-woman in the least, but he's trying to give this troubled church in Corinth some principles that they can work with to be a great witness in the setting in which they lived. And of course, we are called upon to do the same thing in our congregations today. The roles of men and women in the culture and the society are changed in some measure, in some degree, not totally by any stretch. So we need to take these principles to heart. And that's for each of us in our settings, talking with our pastors and our church congregations to work those out. But we can love and admire and respect the different ways that we deal with these issues. Now, the gifts of tongues is interesting. Tongues is two things. One, it was speaking another language without learning it, a real another language. But there was this ecstatic utterance, which also was prevalent in the pagan temples sometimes arrived at through sleep deprivation and so on, that was going into an emotionally charged speech, but a genuine emotional response to God is not bad. It can be positive and edifying, especially to the individual, but it definitely needs to be controlled and guided. This passage from 1 Corinthians is very meaty. It's got a lot in it. It's one of those great books that you need to go through chapter by chapter, theme by theme, and get handles on each and every one, whether it's the gifts of tongues and prophecy. Prophecy meaning not just predicting things in the future, but prophecy meant also forth-telling, telling forth the gospel. In other words, preaching. Whether it's those matters or in these matters of the resurrection of the dead and our identification with Christ, the point is, is that we're not involved in a great superstition. These aren't just a bunch of superstitious rituals of water baptism and symbolic things. These are based in spiritual realities of our harmony, Bible our Live, union with Christ. Soapy Reads from the New Living Translation by Tyndale House Publishers. The Bible Live is dedicated to helping promote spiritual revival across America, and your financial support is needed. Please mail your tax-deductible gift to The Bible Live, Post Office Box 18888. That's The Bible Live, P.O. Box 18888. San Antonio, Texas, 78218. You may also make credit card donations at the ministry website, thebiblelive.com. Now don't forget, join us each weekday for The Bible Live with Soapy Dollar. Start today and in one year's time, we will read and respond together to the entire Bible. 
Let the most important word you hear each day be God's word.